We are Taking the Helm with risk takers who are motivating us to take charge and make things happen with your host, Lynn McLaughlin. Good day, everyone. Today, we're honored to have Donna O'Donnell Fergurski as our guest on Taking the Helm. She's the author of Prisoners Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale. She's the host of Another Fork in the Road on the Brain Injury Radio Network. And she is the creator and writer for her blog, Surviving Traumatic Brain Injury. And to lighten things up, Donna pens picture book manuscripts for children and has published four children's stories with Scholastic. Donna claims her greatest accomplishment is being a caregiver to her husband and her high school sweetheart, David. Thank you for joining us today, Donna. Lynn, I'm so excited to be here with you. Oh, well, let's get started. Okay. Let's go back in time, probably a time that you choose, would like to choose to forget, but it's led you on an entirely different path in your life. Let's go back to that time. It was a regular day, starting out like any other day. You and David were just getting ready. What happened? Wow, you said it. That's exactly what it was. It was a normal everyday day. We were each getting ready to go to work. Um, I was, you know, I usually left the house at seven o'clock to go to my first grade classroom, which was about uh, 50 minutes away. And uh, David would have normally been at his laboratory. He was a professor at Columbia University, and he would have normally have gone, been gone already by now. Uh, and this, I'm talking the now is a seven o'clock in the morning time. Um, David was writing, staying home that morning because he was writing a um, speech that he was going to give, a keynote speech that he was going to give at Wesleyan University that Saturday for a professor friend of his that was retiring. So fortunately, and I tell you that because that possibly could have saved his life, the fact that he was still home. Had he been at laboratory, which he would have been by six in the morning on a normal day, um, nobody would have been there to help him. Now, why did they need to help him? They needed to help him because he had an aneurysm burst inside his head. Well, actually, it was a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. Every morning, David would get up um, by four in the morning, and he would do his exercises. He would do Tai Chi, and he would do uh, chin-ups, and uh, he would listen to music uh, like Duder um, and Sun Spirit, you know, Sun Spirit. He'd listen to very calming music to do this, his version of Tai Chi. And then the chin-ups. And every morning he would do 10, uh, 12 chin-ups. But this morning he did 13. And that 13th chin-up is what did us in forever, <laughs> for the rest mm -hmm. of our lives. Oh. Um, he did that and all of a sudden he felt something burst in his head. He felt something pop. And then he felt the blood rushing through his brain. So he came in to me. I hadn't left yet. I would have left in about 10, 15 minutes to go to my, uh, my classroom. But I hadn't left yet either. So two things had that met, met together to help to save uh, his life and to make us have another, you know, a life afterwards, after brain injury. So anyway, David um, came into my room. I ended up calling the paramedics. We got to the emergency room. The doctor said, I saw your husband's brain on my computer at home and came as quickly as I could. But he shook my hand. He says, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And then he goes, um, your husband is in really good shape. And I'm thinking, yeah, good. That's good news. And yeah. then he goes, you'll make a very good organ donor. Oh. And that just toppled my world right there. 
you know, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I said, you know, and, and then it just goes on and on with that. So event, you know, David did have the first brain surgery and then I moved him to Columbia uh, Presbyterian Hospitals, which what it was called at the time, I believe it's New York uh, Presbyterian now. And, um, and then he was, when he got there, they told me that he had uh, an aneurysm that had to be clipped. It had to be taken out. So that was a second operation. The first operation for the subarachnoid hemorrhage really basically drained the blood from his brain, uh, release, relieving some of the pressure that was going on there. And then uh, once he had the second operation, I thought, okay, well, we're okay now. And the doctor came back and told me that he had to have a third operation mm -hmm. because while they were in his brain, they noticed an AVM, which is an arterial venous malformation. And that simply means in layman's term, a tangle of blood vessels. And those are, they're congenital. A lot of us have it. I might have it right now, you might, but it will never know. It will never happen to us. It's very, it's not that common, but it does happen. And that can also burst. Um, so he called it a time bomb. So I had to make another decision. I had to make the third decision about allowing my husband's brain to be opened up and operated on. And how much time had lapsed between that first decision and now? Okay, so January 13th was the first operation. Uh, January 28th was the last operation. My goodness. So, and you would have, you know, I want to go back to, I didn't want to interrupt you at the time when you were, mm -hmm. you know, you thought you were getting good news and the lack of empathy there is just so shocking to me. It's shocking to many people. It's shocking to me. I can't even believe that someone would say that to you. It goes on. There's, there are more things in the book that you will gasp at. In fact, I like to tell people that the story, and I'll show it to you. It's, it's Prisoners Without Bars. This is my book that I wrote because of, of uh, David's brain injury. But um, in this book, I always like to say it's, uh, it's, a, it's a memoir, but it's a love story. Mm -hmm. And it's one that will make you laugh make you cry and will make you gasp and I think we just gasped right now and there are other gasping moments in here but um it's it's reality in in the medical world you hear these things you know you don't expect to and you shouldn't but you do so yeah so you I mean here here you're about to go off for work as a teacher at the time correct Donna? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're heading off to work as a teacher and, and this whole new world that you were thrown into without warning immediately, you were driven. You were driven right from that beginning. When you were told some things by medical practitioners, you said, no way, I'm doing this way. And, and you had some resources that you could draw upon, but right. you became his voice because he couldn't speak for himself. You became his voice and you became his representative. That's exactly true. And I didn't realize it at the time, um, but I... I was just, I had to be his voice because he was unconscious. He was in a coma. All these things were happening. I'm the one that they came to for what to do. And I had to make those decisions and they were very, very difficult. Signing on those dotted lines to have your husband's brain opened up is really, you know, horrendous. And I'm, I'm, I'm questioning myself. Am I doing the right thing? You know, because I could have not, maybe not done the third surgery David could have gotten through with two and then he could have made the decision once he got, you know, um, better sort of whatever. I don't know what, how better, what better means at that point. But um, when I talked to David afterwards, he said, Oh, I'm so glad that you did 
because I would not want to have to live knowing that was there and have to make that whole decision yourself to go in for elective surgery or something like that. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I didn't know if I was doing the right thing, but I knew I had to trust whatever I thought. And I also trusted the doctors who some of them, I mean, I, I knew from Columbia because David was moved from the original hospital over to Columbia Presbyterian. So the first operation was at the original hospital and then the other two at Columbia. Where he had professional connections himself and colleagues. Yes, he was a professor at, um, at Columbia. He was a microbiology scientist there. And, um, and it was actually his department chairman who make, got the wheels in motion to get him over there as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. I would have had him go first thing that morning that it happened on, on, 2000, uh, on January 13th, but the paramedics won't go across the state line. So I had to go to a nearby hospital, which I didn't know anything about. And uh, yeah, and hence that's, that's the new learning curve, right? You're throwing, yeah. as I said, new world in the learning curve. And I mean, caregivers, yeah, you, you've become an advocate for caregivers and really created resources that weren't there before for people who were thrown into it. I mean, where, who, you had people that you could go to that you had knowledge of, but in terms of speaking to another person who'd been in the caregiver role and understanding the trauma and the stress, and like you said, questioning yourself, am I doing the right thing, am I not? Um, talk to me about the network that you really have created because of what you and David experienced. Okay, yeah, um, you're right. I didn't have any connections with anything. I had never heard of brain injury before. So this was all brand new. And I was thrown into the deep end and I had a choice, swim or drown, you know? And if I drowned, David was gonna drown too. So we had to, I had to swim for both of us. So um, yeah, so I, after this happened, I, and it actually was quite a few years after, I only had one person who was, um, uh, I, that I got to know in the hospital. So she was kind of like my, my um, lean upon person, but her husband had just had a brain injury two weeks after mine. So we were kind of holding each other up a little bit. But um, as far as knowing anything else about it, it wasn't until 2000, well, I had written the book, let's put it that way. I'd written my book, not, not intentionally. I'm gonna get to the, why that happened. But um, I wrote it just because I needed to, Right. Well, I was writing everything down. It was happening in the hospital. I was writing, um, every time I talked to a doctor, I would record, I would digitally record it afterwards. I would write down notes about everything that was happening. So I could go home that night and write emails to the family and friends. It became uh, the David updates. Mm. So um, that was all in my, in my um, files. And I didn't expect it to do a book. I always wrote for children. I was a children's picture book writer. That was my goal. That was my dream. And I was sending my manuscripts out to millions of picture book um, uh, editors and agents. So this, an adult book was never on my radar. I never would have believed I could have even done it, you know, period. It's such a huge endeavor. But because I did that, and about a year after that, I started to write paragraphs that went into chapters. And eventually it turned into what David said when I first started reading it to him, and he did not know what had happened to him. Mm. This is a year later. And he goes, oh my gosh, you did that? Oh my gosh, that happened to me? How did you live through this? And he's the one that encouraged me to keep writing. And he said, it has to be a book. Well, that was started in 2006. I finished it in 2013. 
And that's when the process of getting an agent or a uh, publisher was started. So, um, and that's a different story. But uh, in 2014, that's when uh, an agent was interested in, and she said, what's your platform? So I started um, thinking about what am I going to do? And I found Facebook. And I thought, okay, these are, these are, I mean, I had never seen Facebook at that time. And here, all these people were suffering with brain injury. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of, of brain injury survivors. And that means caregivers too. So at that point, I thought, wow, there are so many stories out there. I wrote a book. I got, I'm getting my voice out heard. But how can I help them to get their voices heard? And so that's how Surviving Traumatic Brain Injury um, blog came about. So I decided I started off with um, Survivors Speak Out. And we devised, David and I actually devised a 20-question um, template. And I would ask people if they'd be interested. And a lot of people came to me once they heard about it. And they'd fill out the template. David was my editor because now we're, ta we're talking nine years later. And his cognitive brain was not impaired at all. Mm -hmm. although he is physically disabled in many, many ways. So his, he used his cognitive brain to work on all my editing and still does. So um, I started to build that. And then I thought, okay, well, this is starting to work now. I've got a lot of survivors speak out and still keep getting them all the time. But let's do caregivers speak out too. So then I did the same thing. They um, just uh, revised their template to fit them and, and started working on that. And then the blog just started to grow and grow and grow. There, was, there are so many aspects on the blog that if someone wants to go to survivingtraumaticbraininjury.com, you will find tons of information about brain injury and you will find out that you are not alone out there. Not at all. It's, it's very much an invisible disability, isn't it? For many people, it is an invisible. For David, it's not. For many people, it is. And on my radio show, uh, Surviving Traumatic... No, what is it? What's my radio show called? Another Fork in the Road. Oh. <laughs> um, it's called Another Fork in the Road, and uh, it's on the Brain Injury Radio Network on blogtalkradio.com. Yes, and I was and, honored to be your guest. Yes, you were. I w and then, and that, to say even something more, I was honored to be able to meet you in Detroit in person. As yeah, you came that's, another, that's another story. I mean, the networking. Yeah. So I'm so thrilled that you found Facebook because ironically, yeah. that's where we met. And then we discovered we had something in common with a brain injury. I'm, I'm one of those people with an invisible brain injury because yeah. of it. Um, and uh, so we read each other's books and we started to network with each other. And Donna happened to be coming to visit uh, family in Detroit. I'm right across the border in Kingsville, Ontario, and I drove over and we spent a lovely afternoon with lunch and getting to know each other. So anyone out there who's just venturing off into a new path, whether you're an author or a writer or something totally different, start to build those networks because it's incredible, especially in this new virtual world and globally we're talking to each other. Uh, people from Europe will listen to this podcast, you know, welcome, let's talk. Maybe someday we'll meet up. <laughs> That's true. Who would have thought, you know, we did. Yeah. It, was, it was a great afternoon. Right. Yeah. So anyhow, that's how, that's how that started. And um, it's been really good. And because of that, once I was, became a, um, the blogger and, and so involved in Facebook, I got known and the Brain Injury Radio Network found me and asked me to be a host. I had two hosts there that came after me and I like 
no, I can't do this. I've never done anything like that. (laughs) And David goes, yes, you can do it. Mm -hmm. So um, I said, okay. And with trepidation, I, I tried it. And I interviewed with my, um, my host mentor. And um, then I said, okay, I'll do it. And now we're talking almost five years later, I think five or six years later and something like 200 shows that I have done. Um, so yeah, who knows what's going to happen in your life. That's right. It's very encouraging and a path that you never thought you were going to take. <laughs> or had any Probably a path I wish I hadn't had to take. But since I was given and I was thrust onto that path, you have to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. You've got to make the best of it. And if I can help anybody through this, I am so happy to do that. Because it's, I started off totally alone without anybody there to hold, you know, other than my friend Judy to, and she didn't know anything more than I did. So, you know, so it was, um, it was, it was scary. It was really scary. And there's no need for people to reinvent the wheel now because there are so many people out here, but you have to know where to find them. You know? So now David is doing remarkably well today. I, he, I know he's writing. I, I read his current uh, post about COVID-19 and some of the research that's being done over in the UK. Uh, he's done remarkably well. And, you know, you know, you must be so proud because the reason he is where he is today is in a large part due to your advocacy on his behalf. Well, that's nice of you to say. And, but, you know, uh, we're a team. You know, he's my best friend. I met him when I was 16. I knew I was going to marry him. Went home and told my mother that I would marry him. David didn't know until many years later, four years later, but um, I let him know too. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've been together. I hate to say it, but well, we're we're on our fifty one year of marriage this year. Congratulations! And we knew each other four years before, five years before that. So, yeah, it goes back a ways. Now so, let's let's segue off to you're about to venture into the audio book world, and um, so you know in as an author myself, I did do an audio book, but you're doing it a different way. So just for any authors or writers out there that are considering this path, there are different ways to do this. So Donna, what are you doing right now to make uh, Prisoners Without Bars into an audio book? A lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> because you're narrating it yourself, yes, which is one of the options. Yes, uh, there were, uh, my publisher is um, going to be pub- you know, publishing it eventually as soon as I get it done. And she offered me three options. And one option was to um, have Audible do it for nothing, but they keep your rights for seven years. So they share in your royalties for that period of time. It probably would have been okay. I wouldn't have had a problem with that, but I wanted to be the reader. I felt that this book had to have my natural voice in it. So uh, the third choice was for me to do that and hire my own audiographer and then send it to them and then they take it over to Audible and and it gets finished that way. So it will be eventually available on Audible, on Apple and uh, a lot of other areas, even areas that we don't even know about yet. But that's one of the reasons I went that way too because my uh, publisher can push it off in different um, markets. Where mm-hmm. is, whereas if I had gone the first route, I wouldn't have been able to do that for seven years. Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of cautions, a lot of cautions for people who are looking at all of the options. I mean, you're, you're in the position where you were the caregiver and you were the author in my book. I, I was the patient and I, um, 
I would have loved to be able to narrate it, but I stumble over my words. It's part of who I am right now. So I hired a narrator, Marnie, uh, Marnie Young Hall. <laughs> Absolutely remarkable. So there are different yeah. paths. There are different uh, paths to do yes. to do an audio book. And there's quite, you know, especially with COVID right now, with bookstores closed and libraries closed or just being able to do pickups, people yeah. are going to ebooks and audiobooks. So Right. I, I prefer audio or ebooks right now to myself. David listens to audiobooks. And audiobooks will be a great resource for folks that have uh, a brain injury or anybody who has some kind of um, a disability that doesn't allow them to, you know, it makes it more difficult for them to read a, a physical book. So um, ebooks or audiobooks work, you know, really well now. Mm -hmm. I wish my audiobook were out already, but I finished the second final reading yet last night, and David's going to do his reading, and we still have some tweaks. I still see some tweaks, but the hardest part of that was is I had to um, audio. I had to record it in uh, the middle of the night when all the birds stopped chirping, <laughs> when all the uh, Air Force jets stopped going over the house. So literally, I would start at one in the morning, and I'd work till about uh, about four thirty when the birds would get up again, and um, and then that the, so that was my time frame. And oh. Lynn, when you say that you trip over your words, you don't have any clue how many times I tripped over words, <laughs> and how many times I had to re-record. Oh my gosh! That's, that's what editing's for. That's okay. That's what editing's oh. for. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so, but it, but it's almost there. I think it's almost there. <laughs> you, you make sure once it's out there that you start entering the audiobook um, awards because and I'm going to flip to this right now because you've won many awards, Donna. Actually, you and I were both named finalists in the Book Excellence Awards. So congratulations. Oh, cool. You, you just maybe speak about, I mean, it's just, it's just so uh, uplifting as an author to be recognized for the work that you're doing to change the lives of others. But you, yeah. Congratulations to you. You've done very well. Thank you. Yes, the book has earned three awards. I'm really proud of it. You know, it's worked hard for me too. <laughs> Donna, so with everything that you've experienced in caring for David and in the network that you've created in the blog posts and the radio network, what advice do you have for caregivers? Wow. The biggest advice I have for caregivers, which is something I did not take myself, and that's why I think I can really tell you that you should, um, is to take time for yourself. There, I mean, you're going to be focused so intently on the person that you love or, the, or your care recipient, but you have to take time for yourself. And so one of the things I do when I go to, uh, when I do talks, I, I do have speaking engagements. And one of the things that I do is I offer people what I call me time stones. And they're simply little black rocks, little, Here's one right here, little black polished stones. That's David's actually, I went and borrowed his. And here's another one, he carries two in his pocket all the time. And here's mine, and I carry it always with me. And uh, sometimes, you know, but at nighttime it goes on the, ba ba uh, the bathroom counter and I forgot it today, so I ran off to get it. But anyhow, that's my little um, me time stone. So. What are these for? I think they're for, they're, they're there to make you think. Whenever you, I keep it in my pocket or something on me. And whenever I happen to put my hand in my pocket, I feel it and I thought, ah, I have to think some time for myself. Whether it be five minutes to have a cup of tea, 
whether it be maybe read a chapter a book of a book, take a walk around the block, maybe a bubble bath at night before you go to bed, but time that's just about you, that you're not focusing on your, your care recipient. Because you, as a caregiver, are, are not only taking care of your care recipient, you have to take care of everything else in the world too. I mean, the household chores don't go away. The bills don't go away. The insurance company um, calls and messages don't go away and you have to pick up the slack of whoever you had, you know, you were um, maybe partnering with, like my husband. So my life changed totally because I became the total person, the, the alpha person basically in the family at that time. Now we share everything again, but, but still, I, I'm still responsible for many of the things that David was always responsible for. So me time stones are just there to help you to remember to stop and to breathe to take some meditation time, to take some mindfulness time. Think about something that is going to make you happy and take you out of the zone. I used to do jewelry and I would zone out totally. This was early on in, the, in the, um, uh, David's recovery. And when I did that, nothing could, nothing could enter except what I was creating. And I think that it's something, and, and you have to choose whatever works for you, but I think that is the most important thing to do is to take time for yourself. Uh, words of wisdom, because when you're sucked into something like that, it just becomes all consuming. You really could take you over. So it, thank yeah. you, it's very inspiring, very encouraging your words of advice. Thank you. I hope people will take, take them because I wish someone had told me to do it. Yeah, well, I have a feeling that even if they had told you back in that time that you likely would not have <laughs> followed you through. too well now, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> so Donna, I mean, obviously for our listeners, you, you have many, many words of advice, not just in this uh, half hour podcast interview. How can people reach you if they want to know more? Go to my website to learn a lot more about me. Uh, you'll see a whole page of cast of characters. There are about 20 or so people that that uh, made the list of, of people that got into the book. And, um, and so there's all kinds of information about the book, more about the story, all kinds of things at DonnaFigurski.com. Just a little bit easier there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Donna. So for those of you listening on a podcast app, if you'd like to see the video version, go to my YouTube channel, Lynn McLaughlin. A new video and a new interview is posted every Wednesday. And on that note, everyone, have a healthy, and safe day. Thanks for listening. For more episodes learning from people who are steering us in the right direction, visit lynnmclaughlin.com or subscribe to this podcast feed.